Hello and welcome to the latest in our series of That Tinnitus podcast and this edition is going to be talking about a tinnitus biobank and the potential that that might have in tinnitus research and joining the podcast today are David Stockdale who is the Chief Executive of the British Tinnitus Association and Will Sedley who is the Wellcome Trust Clinical Research Fellow and Consultant Neurologist at Newcastle University. My name is Nick Ray, I'm the Communications Manager at the British Tinnitus Association and I will be facilitating this session but David and Will will be leading the conversation, so I will ask them both to introduce themselves now. So, David. Thanks, Nick. So, yes, I'm David Stockdale, Chief Executive of the British Tinnitus Association. Um, Been with the BTA for 12 years nearly now, and, yeah, really enthusiastic about tinnitus research, finding better ways to manage tinnitus and ultimately a cure for tinnitus as well so we can deliver on the the British Tinnitus Association's vision of a world where no one suffers from tinnitus. Thank you David and Will would you like to say a few words? Yes uh, thank you Nick Uh, my name's Will Sedley Uh, so I lead a little bit of a split existence I spend half my time as a neurologist not having very much uh, to do with tinnitus and the other half conducting research uh, into the auditory system, how our brain makes sense of sounds and why we perceive what we perceive, with a very particular interest in mechanisms that might go wrong in order to cause tinnitus and other related uh, disorders. I I conduct mainly quite small-scale studies with human volunteers, looking at brain recordings mainly, to really try and get at the mechanisms of how tinnitus comes to be perceived as a sound where there is no external sound to begin with, what I call the hard problem of tinnitus. Uh, And in an ideal world, I'd love to learn everything about tinnitus. There's a lot I don't directly cover, but I'm interested in including the myriad ways in which that goes on to affect people's brains and experiences and functioning and all the other impacts tinnitus has uh, as well. Thank you, Will. And finally, I'd like to thank um, an important organisation that that aren't here with us, our podcast sponsors, Autology Tinnitus Care. Thank you very much for for your support. So I guess the first question is, what exactly is a biobank? A biobank is, in essence, a, a collection of biological data. And that can then be broadened out as well to not only biological data, and by that we might mean things like blood samples, saliva samples, but also then looking at other broader data as well, which helps us inform and develop and and build a picture really to, to help better understand a condition or impact of, of different factors really in terms of either generating a condition, making a condition worse, or or also improving as well. And one of the reasons that the British Tinnitus Association are interested in in developing a biobank is really through the the journey that we've been on to, to really understand tinnitus research, where we've got up to what some of the challenges and barriers are and, and how we best respond to them as well. So so going through that that journey that we've been on in terms of developing a, a map of tinnitus, if you like, the, the 
the cure maps are looking at all of the tinnitus research that's happened which um, we then published in a paper called why is there no cure for tinnitus and then using that to really extrapolate and look at where the challenges are and how can we best address them and actually through developing that through discussions through um, arguments through through a lot of different um, interactions that we've had with funders people living with tinnitus um, potential sponsors and the the research community, we believe that one of the ways that we may be able to address several of those questions at once is through developing a, a biobank and a, a condition-specific biobank around tinnitus to really help us understand those factors and really build on our knowledge and hopefully accelerate our understanding at a pace that we haven't really seen yet in tinnitus research. Yeah, as, as a researcher, Will, do you think that there's there's value in it and a need for a, a biobank? What do you hope it will, will bring for you? Yeah, I think that's a really, a really good point. And, you know, is is there a need for it? It's very, it's very hard to say what is a need. Is there a value? Absolutely, yes. Um, I think this, in short, does stand to be very informative in a number of ways about tinnitus. David, I thought it was a really nice... Um, summary of what a biobank is and what uh, this biobank would hope to achieve. And I suppose I'd like to contrast it with another uh, really excellent biobank, um, which you and I've discussed previously, the UK is not specifically about tinnitus, but covers an enormous number of health conditions and aspects of health and collects vast, very, very broad ranging data, everything from blood samples, genetics, measurements, disease questionnaires, brain scans, etc. Um, and, 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 you know, like a, like a tinnitus biobank might, these have the strength of having enormous numbers, thousands, tens of thousands, or even hundreds of thousands of people, which just give you the numbers to draw robust conclusions about the relationships between all these many, many interacting factors, without which it's very hard to understand how all these different parts of a very complex picture all fit together. And, and I think one, one of the things that's a limitation in something like UK Biobank for tinnitus research is there's just not enough in there about tinnitus and all the other things that are so important to characterize to really get a picture about it. So there's a question or two of whether you do, do you experience sound in your ears on a regular basis? What do you think you have a big problem with your hearing? But that's kind of about it. And this is the real counterpoint, this tinnitus biobank we're talking about, um, uh, which will provide a very, very detailed characterization of, uh, David, you're probably planning to talk more about this anyway, but a, a very detailed characterization of all the really important relative aspects of tinnitus and related symptoms and risk factors and consequences, without which you just you, you just can't um, can't really answer the scientific questions we want to with, without there being lots of confounds and caveats. One thing that really struck me very early on about this is um, that it really might help definitively make headway with this very hot topic in tinnitus research that people just aren't necessarily getting clear answers to, and that's that relates to subtypes of tinnitus. There's this big debate of whether there are distinct different subtypes that we really should consider separate conditions and treat as separate conditions, or whether they whether there are lots of ways in which tinnitus varies, each one of which is on a spectrum, and there's just lots and lots of 
very lots of variable spectra and you can sit at any place in any number of those and i think without without some sort of big resource or biobank i don't think we'll be able to answer those questions and i, I think it's really exciting to be able to actually move forward I, I i myself have sat on the fence as to whether subtypes of tinnitus really exist or not uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to having the evidence to really push me one way or another yeah, and I think just to give an example of something you were saying, Will, about the limitations of using UK Biobank for tinnitus research, I remember a project that we were discussing and looking at, you know, could we do um, use the data in a certain way? And actually, because we didn't even have data on laterality of tinnitus, so whether someone's hearing tinnitus in the left ear, the right ear, or both ears, we felt that, that we couldn't really pursue a project using UK Biobank data, which would have helped us with some of that understanding of tinnitus and, and move it forward. So with those limitations, I think we are really sort of fighting with one arm tied behind our back, I think, in using the, the data that's out there with, within existing biobanks at the moment. And, and and then, yeah, to to come back to the biobank plans with for a tinnitus biobank that you've floated so far it's just the richness of the different measures you know all detailed characterization of not only the symptoms but as far towards objective measures of tinnitus as, exi as exist pitch matching loudness matching um the different symptom and rating scales really good characterization of hearing function in every way possible examination of all related aspects of physical and mental health consequences of tinnitus and uh, and, and I think, if I'm, I'm not mistaken, you're planning to collect some follow-up data so these things can even be used potentially to predict the course of someone's tinnitus and its impact moving forward, which could be really informative, particularly as the number of treatment options expands, to be able to really know how best to target which cases to prioritise, which might get better and improved by themselves, and, and what type of approach to use for different cases requiring those interventions. Absolutely. I think um, it's right to be ambitious and, you know, obviously constraints of um, finance and funding come into it. But I think, you know, try and do as much as we can um, in one go, really, with one project rather than, yeah, having to do future longitudinal studies. I think design in as much as you can to, to ensure that the project's future proof and, and collecting longitudinal data will certainly be something that we'll, we'll aspire to do. And I, and I guess you don't necessarily need to bring people back to do the whole shebang and physically attend in person again, but even even just catching up over the phone a year or two later and ju just just checking on the severity of their tinnitus symptoms as per questionnaires would, would tell you so much more. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a great point. So I think, yeah, there's there's lots of opportunity and ambition there. And I think some of it will be trying to navigate that landscape and understand which tests are, are really going to be optimal in terms of giving us the best shot uh, at finding and uncovering some of those those answers that allow others to get involved and, and really hopefully pursue that that cure and open the open the floodgates really to industry and to researchers to really interrogate and understand what's there to, to hopefully help find future potential cures and, and better ways to manage tinnitus. You've spoken a little bit about about the type of data that you'll be collecting and I, I you know I know plans are at very very early stages but what do you think it would involve um in, you know if somebody wants to be part of this biobank what would you like to see from the tinnitus community in sort of the information that you collect or how they get involved with it at the moment um we're designing a 
collection battery that will take around about two hours because we think that's the most that we can hope and expect from people really to to commit to sort of putting themselves through um such rigorous testing um and a key tenant of that is going to be getting high quality audiological data because that's what's really lacking in a lot of those um, existing biobanks at the moment is getting that data around hearing and really thoroughly understanding the interaction between hearing and tinnitus so a big part of it will be collecting audiological data um, we'll also hopefully be collecting blood samples um, to con continue the the excellent work that's happened in in looking at um, a better understanding of the impact of different objective markers or biomarkers that may exist of tinnit for tinnitus, and a a whole range of questionnaires, as Will suggested, to understand some basic demographics and some basic history of medical histories of, of people who are in there, but also then some really specific questionnaires around tinnitus and probably some mental health questionnaires as well to help us better characterise and understand some of the interactions that seem to, to occur there. Um, beyond that, there really is a broad discussion happening about, you know, do we need imaging? How can we get imaging if possible, especially within the constraints of how we're thinking of collecting the data? And also then, you know, looking more broadly as well at tinnitus-specific testing or testing that you wouldn't normally um, experience within a sort of hearing test, if you like, or an audiology exam. So things like Will mentioned around upper loudness limits and tinnitus pitch matching and those sorts of things as well, and better understanding how they can help us understand and characterize tinnitus and, and potentially, like Will said, drop that um, characterization that, that allows us to give a definite type of tinnitus or maybe help to develop those different categorizations and subtypes of tinnitus as well. I think that's all really well put. Uh, thank you. And, and, and just to pick up on your point about imaging, so uh, you know, for anyone who uh, isn't, isn't clear on that, we're talking about brain imaging, um, which is a term that covers everything from very expensive MRI-based brain scans to simpler things like uh, EEG, i.e. electrical recordings with little sticky pads placed on the head, a bit like a heart tracing, but on your head, that are very uh, safe and comparatively cheap and straightforward. And I think it's a really key question. I mean, it's a whole, this is obviously relates a lot to my uh, areas of research. And th there's been decades of interest in brain imaging in tinnitus and very few, if any, conclusive reproducible findings. Um, and largely because we tend to see a whole series of very small studies with maybe only 20 or 30 people with tinnitus compared to a control group, often who aren't matched for th even basic things like hearing and sometimes not even age, uh, and trying to make a lot based on them. And the trouble is that lots and lots of small studies never add up to the quality of one big rigorous study. There have been one or two larger ones, even then we're just talking a few hundred people and still with some caveats. So in a sense, it seems like an amazing opportunity to just go to you know 10 or 100 times bigger than anything that's been done before. I think it's a challenging thing. Obviously, brain imaging is not absolutely straightforward. It would have to be something very basic, like with EEG that's very portable, cheap and, and quick um, to do. There's still a lot to consider in how one does it but it's it's a big question because i think and I, I think it comes down to whether the tinnitus biobank is looking to characterize subtype and prognosticate and follow tinnitus whether it also wants to in itself have a have a shot at um uncovering what is the basis or the underlying mechanism of tinnitus 
which is still a highly controversial and still rather elusive question without without a definitive answer even now after the in, enormous research investment worldwide that's gone into tinnitus. I say enormous, obviously it's another conversation about whether it's as enormous as it should be given the incredible scale of the tinnitus problem and I think we all agree uh, my use of the term enormous here is still an order of magnitude less than we'd like it to be uh, and less than on a par with other conditions but it's not to underestimate the number of minds that have looked at problem looked at the problem in various ways and still not yet come up with the definitive goods and i i do find this an exciting prospect because i think this very large number of volunteers taking part coupled with the very extensive broad and rigorous set of tests really will be unique in the field of tinnitus and I, I think it's such a big opportunity to try and make the absolute most of because this does have the potential to move things forward in a way that just hasn't been possible before. And I think that's that's a very positive uh, way of looking forward. But I think both of you have have mentioned some of the challenges that might be involved in collecting this data and the limitations that there might be, possibly because of funding, because there isn't the funding in internetus research perhaps that there is in other conditions so what do you think some of the the challenges that you're working on now to overdress are and what could be down the line there are several i'll outline them and then maybe willie can jump in with uh with thoughts on on any of them or, or any of this too so in as you say the biggest is funding um what we'd be looking at would be the largest single tinnitus research project that's ever been undertaken outside of um, pharmaceutical research. Um, the, there's been a couple of bigger research projects, but they tend to be uh, multilateral with lots of partners and lots of different countries involved. So, so this would be of a magnitude bigger than anything we've seen before that's that's been taken outside of industry. And there, there are other challenges as well. So will people living with tinnitus turn up and and be part and participate and sign up and form an orderly queue to, to be part of the project and, and be part of the biobank. We know that a lot of tinnitus trials in the past have failed on recruitment. Um, no one's ever tried to recruit to a tinnitus biobank before, so there's definitely a big unknown there. And also, we'll be relying on getting a lot of people involved who don't have tinnitus as well, because we'll need those controls to compare the tinnitus cases with so we'll want people with very similar hearing profiles for instance so that you can compare and contrast and and control for differences in hearing and a further barrier is this is probably a one shot that we'll get at creating a, a resource like this so it'll be absolutely critical to to future proof it so we can expand it in different ways if we want to look at different tests or biobanking different samples in the future as well as wanting to make sure that we collect the best highest quality data to the to the most rigorous protocols that we can to make sure that the data is usable and and isn't rubbish you know you could fall foul of the the standard sayings on, on any database that you get out of it what you put into it and unless you're putting in the best most robust highest quality data then you won't get the research that you want at the other end of it either i think those are excellent points uh, david thanks and i would agree on all of them although i'm i have a slightly different experience of recruiting to tinnitus research studies in that actually the one the one barrier i've never had is a lack of willingness to come forward and take part in research from the tinnitus community. I've always been really impressed by 
just how keen so many people with tinnitus are to get involved. And, you know, this is in studies where they have nothing directly to gain. It's only just to further knowledge of the field as a whole and out of motivation, like feeling they are doing a useful and good thing. Um, for my studies, we've always paid our participants a modest fee for their time. Many have even tried to refuse to take that. Um, we, we always insist they do, obviously. What 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 is interesting though is actually that I suppose getting getting the fully representative sample of the whole tinnitus population out there because there certainly are um, certain groups or demographics of people who come forward for research more than others and I think it fundamentally relates to time availability so we see a big peak in students and we see an even bigger peak in uh, people of retirement age and then a lower amount in in the middle of people who are very busy uh, with work uh, young kids etc like that which so there, there may be something to think about about just ensuring that the sample does remain fully reflective of the the absolute breadth of people living with tinnitus which as we probably all know although there is an increasing uh, prevalence of it with age that we are really talking about both sexes all ages any group of people you care to name really are living with tinnitus in significant numbers in, in terms of getting people david i think we have we haven't so far said that i believe your plan is to load up a van and a, and one or two trained uh, research uh, technicians and tour the country uh, taking in huge swathes of uh, volunteers everywhere you go uh, that that's still the plan is it absolutely yes yeah, so the plan is still to get a van as you say and, and equip it with um, audiological equipment and a soundproof room and the ability to take bloods and then yes um, drive it around the country and you know locate it somewhere for a week and and get as many people through and processed as, as possible and really try and use it as a opportunity to promote what tinnitus is and, and increase awareness of tinnitus around the UK as well. Um, so that's yeah, certainly um, still the plan. It's, it's interesting what you say about um, recruitment as well because I think something we will want is a representative sample but we probably will want to skew it towards people who have severe tinnitus and probably people who are slightly younger as well so that we can try and get as clean a medical history if you like as possible so that we can um, rule out as many comorbidities as possible and really try and focus in on that you know severe categorization of tinnitus as well so so yeah a big part of our work will be learning from from what you've done will in terms of recruitment as well and really trying to ensure that we do get um, samples that are really going to benefit us but as well of course we will want the the vast gamuts and and spectrum of, of people living with tinnitus there um, so yes that's that's certainly the plan and and the hope is yeah that we can take the van around do huge piece of uh, communications work really promote where we're going to be and 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 hope that people will will sign up and participate great no i find it such an appealing prospect the the touring tinnitus van um, and David, it's a very, it's a very important uh, serious point you make about the real delicate balancing act. You do, you want, yeah, sort of uh, clean or unconfounded cases without too many other health variables, and you want the severe cases to be able to help them and prioritise them, and enough to really be able to make a lot of conclusions about it. And I guess to some extent, you want enough of the less severe cases though, so that you have something to contrast the more severe cases with to, to see the differences. 
I thought what you said about control volunteers was really important because it is it is generally harder to get the matched controls um, where you're you're constrained in the age, sex, and exact hearing profile and other characteristics of the individual. And yet they don't have the tinnitus or that thing giving them the reason to be aware of this issue and and come forward. Um, so it's it's always doable, um, but can be a bit more of a challenge. We, we've sometimes ended up needing to pre-screen a larger group of volunteers and then select the best matches. Um, I don't know whether that's something feasible for you, or I think you'd also talked about getting people to bring a friend or bring a family member who you'd hope would be a, a close match in terms of those variables, which would help help keep things fairly equivalent between the groups you're comparing. Yes, that's right. So what we hope we'd be able to do with the controls is encourage those people who are turning up with tinnitus to, like, say, bring a friend, bring a family member who will hopefully then be co closely correlated in terms of um, some of those variables and, and help us build a, a matched database that way and match biobank through yeah fam familiar controls ideally so what i'd like to just pop in and say is that if you are interested in this project and perhaps participating in the future when it's when it's up and running you can actually uh, sign up on our website which is tinnitus.org.uk forward slash biobank um, and there you can also sign up for uh, if you want to learn more about the, the project as, as it develops. So, yes, yeah, so if you'd like to participate, whether you have severe tinnitus, mild tinnitus, no tinnitus, you'd like to be a control, that will be your opportunity. And I'll repeat those details at the end of the podcast. If you're living with tinnitus, you deserve efficient and effective care. At Autology, that's what you get. Autology is a specialist clinic for tinnitus without waiting lists. Our experts choose from proven treatments to improve your quality of life. To support Tinnitus Week, we're offering free assessments if you book a call with our team from February the 7th to 13th with the code BTAWEEK. Book your call at autology.com slash BTA. Conditions apply. See autology.com for details. I guess people who are participating, if they have questions about the sort of process and the ethics around the collection and keeping samples safe, I guess that's still going to be very key to the, the success of the project. You've talked about the quality of the projects, but I think you would also want to make sure people feel confident in, in participating. Will, what sort of standards do you have? I mean, it, so thankfully, we live in an era of very closely guarded and controlled research governance and regulations. So we, we work under GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, uh, which I think people will be familiar with and have noticed that suddenly every website they use is asking for their permission for every type of data stored. So so research data is the and research studies are most tightly controlled. There's there's very clear and strict regulation that we have to store the minimum amount of sensitivity of data and it to be as unpersonally traceable as possible, which is what would, in the unlikely event of a data leak, minimise any impact. And I think we're, we're not talking about data with the potential for exploitation like bank details, financial records and things, but still it's a very high priority to guard this. 
And then there are mandatory systems in terms of where the data can be stored, you know, physical records needing to be locked away with controlled access only to people who are members of the research team and need to access them and only for that purpose, digital records, which we're mainly talking about being stored on secure servers, password protected, and again, viewed and analysed only by people who have a need to look at them and only for those purposes. We, we often use additional anonymization procedures, so although we may have the actual name and identifiable information of the person who signed up for the purposes of contacting them and booking them in, um, that often when they actually enter the study, everything's just recorded under a random or otherwise unidentifiable anonymous code. And you may have a single piece of paper in a locked filing cabinet somewhere that links the code to the individual. And at the end of the study, there's a time even that's destroyed and you can never link the data to the individual. So there are all these layers of security. Um, so it, it's all, it's almost something like, yeah, it, it's so important that I think we uh, in the research community almost just can take it as read that we'll it will happen and we'll follow that. But I think it's an important thing to emphasize here that people's information and data security are taken very seriously. But David, you can probably comment, I suspect you may have thought more about the specific specifics of how this would actually run for the Tinnitus Biobank. Yeah, and I think that's a great description you've given there, Will, of how it is ran within a university and a key part of what we'll be doing is working with a university partner to run through their ethics systems to ensure that we are doing this at um, you know best practice levels and best governance levels to ensure that we do have the right data compliance so that it is excellent as well I mean we will face some challenges with doing it in terms of we'll be potentially collecting the data out in the field continuously so again we're thinking about how to make sure that that data is transferred ethically and quickly and that as little data as possible is maintained on site if you like or within um within the IT systems that, that may be in the van so uploading the data or every evening to a to a central site and then um erasing the data from the from the local site or or the the IT that we have as to collect the to collect the samples would be really key so yes so we're looking at all of that as well as obviously what happens to the blood samples as well so we'll be um sending off the the blood samples that are collected on a daily basis as well to ensure that that they're stored in the right way both for security but also to to preserve the the blood as best as possible i, th I think you've both spoken about things collecting the best data following the best practices, the, the sort of focus on quality here seems really, really key. Are you hoping that the, the studies that come out using this data will be equally robust and will this data be open to researchers to use in the future? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, Again, you only get out of it what, what you put into it and I think a really big part of um, the BTA's work whilst this is going on and whilst the um, whilst we're collecting the data will be really to motivate the tinnitus research community and, and wider afield to use and access this data as well and to, and to look at what we can learn and even maybe using things like um, informatics and big data um, systems and algorithms as well to really interrogate it and see what we can learn so I think yeah we will absolutely be focusing on on that high quality data as well and and you know the reason for doing this is it's it's very easy to collect abstract bits of 
data on tinnitus at the moment i mean you know the bta we we do it very well in terms of sending out questionnaires and getting people to fill it in there and then what's missing is this high quality um healthcare data at linked to it and, and specifically the audiology audiological data in my view and so being able to have that and match that all together is what's going to give us those answers but then yes we need a motivated enthused inquisitive researcher community to to work with us to really find those those um, bits of gold that those gold nuggets that are going to help us move the field forward and really help us to understand you know where the opportunities lie for, for future treatments and and hopefully future cures and just to run with uh, what you're saying david which i think was really well put i think part of the original thing you envisaged right from the start is not merely that these data would be available on request to other tinnitus researchers and groups, but that, that they're reaching out to these groups, collaborating with making the data available and them applying their own ingenuity techniques was one of the massive intentions right from the outset. That, it, that again, while you might have questions, you'll be able to address directly from the plans you already have and the data that actually seeing what everybody else in other groups can make of them was a real part of the value you'd anticipate from the project. And I, I think that's still still the case isn't it absolutely there, there's certainly no shortage of creativity in the tinnitus research community about the different analytical techniques people are keen to try on data sets um, it never ceases to amaze me i think you'd also mentioned one possible um, way of this also feeding into the activities of the wider tinnitus research community was whether it could also serve as providing pools of people who might be interested in participating in other research studies. Presumably people when they signed up would give their consent that yes or no, I don't do or don't want to be contacted um, by other researchers to let me know of other research studies. But if they did, it would mean that other research studies could be run on very, very robustly well characterized, well studied um, tinnitus populations. Because I think often a lot of brain imaging, for instance, studies of tinnitus, they do great brain imaging, but they haven't spent the hour, you know, the, the hours and done the meticulous work in characterizing people's details, symptoms, hearing profiles, medical histories, and all the other bits. Um, and then actually combining the best of both worlds might, might really increase the quality and rigor of studies, because it is all very well identifying some change in the brain, whether it's a change in brain structure, function, connectivity, or how the brain responds to sounds, for instance you need to know exactly what you're correlating it with. And if you if you know exactly what you're correlating it with because you've really carefully controlled your groups and you've matched them for everything and the only difference is the tinnitus or this one variable in tinnitus, then you can make sense of those brain data. And one thing that's just so frustrating continually reading tinnitus research papers is these studies come out and go, oh, we found these and these and these brain changes. But the groups, there were so many differences between the tinnitus group and the control group. Even simple things like age and hearing, if those are controlled for, there are differences in things like overall levels of distress, arousal, sleep disturbance, possibly possibly medications, although usually controlled for, and just even what kind of study they know they're taking part in, how they're deploying their attention. There's so, so many other factors. And I, I think I do see potentially a tinnitus biobank, um, again, being able to help help kind of close some of these holes in the field and really allow us to be much more robust in interpreting our, our findings. Of course, it does require be, having the people willing to come back for these studies and the research groups motivated to 
contact the people and run the studies, bearing in mind that, of course, the people will be scattered around the country and any, for instance, brain imaging study or further research would be located in one geographic area. But I, I suppose you'd be presumably hoping to have, because there's so many people you'd hope to have involved in Tinnitus Biobank, that actually even in any given geographical area, that would still be a bigger number of individuals than most research studies in tinnitus even just in that one area is that, is that right yes i think so as you say one of the added value projects off this i hope that we will be able to do is generate a patient registry so a register of people who are like you say very well characterized if we can link their data to to their records as well saying that you know they're willing to be part of tinnitus trials anywhere um and then yeah the hope is that again research centers will be able to come to us and say we want you know this characterization we'll be able to tell them how many there are within their center or within a hundred mile travel radius or whatever else and be able to you know really help with with some of the recruitment with some you know ex like say exceptionally well characterized data um, and yes because of the numbers that we're looking to recruit i'd expect there'd be you know mid, low to mid hundreds in in any city in the uk which again you know compared to what happens with most um studies especially those around imaging like we've already discussed it'd be a an order of magnitude above what what's been achieved in the past yeah i think i think it's fantastic i think this could be so um I, I've, I've got progressively even more enthused about this side of the benefits of the biobank potentially um as time has gone on so so as well as this sort of Side, almost side effects and, and increasing collaboration within the tinnitus community. Is the sort of a main aim of the biobank that we haven't yet talked about that you'd like to sort of explore and discuss? I think it, it doesn't have one aim. Um, I think it has several, you know, around can we find an objective measure? Can we find a biomarker? Can we better define tinnitus? can we um you know look at those subtypes which is probably you know where we will have most success i think with this and looking at um well identifying if subtypes do or don't exist within tinnitus but then beyond that there are so many other projects and points that that we could find and and add value around as well in terms of you know looking specifically around comorbidities and their interactions with tinnitus that you know haven't had the data to to really go to the levels that we'd be able to with the with the sort of depth of information that we'll have on tinnitus and um and the audiological data as well so i think there are real opportunities to do that and maybe start to untangle the uh, the hearing tinnitus challenge as well in terms of you know what confounds the other and what are the real impacts of hearing loss and tinnitus and how do you like say start to untangle those because once we do that it really does open the doors i think as well for for future drugs trials as well if you look at the drugs trials that are happening at the moment there are lots of them focused around hearing restoration or hearing recovery and actually will those help tinnitus or not we don't know but actually through this we might be able to understand if they could or if not why not as well so i think there's some real exciting tangents off those main core questions as well i mean and if we're successful in answering any of those core questions around subtyping, you know, objective measures, even finding the optimal subjective measure, you know, it'll help tinnitus research move forward in the future as well. Absolutely, F fully agree on all on all counts. Uh, and I think to to again run run further, I think there's, I, I think there is sort of two points I could raise here. I think on the one hand, 
I think, projects of this kind, some, sometimes the most exciting and useful things that come out of them aren't even the ones you initially planned because you learned so much that until you learned it, you didn't even know what were the right questions to ask. But I, th I think on the other hand, absolutely, there are some clear, tangible goals and very likely gains that we could be confident would come out of it. And I fully agree. I think the lowest lying fruit of the major tinnitus questions will be the subtyping. And, and it's really not to be underestimated the importance of this. It generates so much debate and many consider it a critical barrier to progress in the field. I think with a brain imaging measure, if able to get it in there, there could be, you know, whatever that measure is, this may prove to be the overwhelmingly most definitive study to date on what the best biomarker or measure of or abnormality of related to tinnitus or causing tinnitus is that it as long you know provided it's detectable with that measure if you measure ongoing resting state brain activity it may be the definitive tinnitus resting state brain imaging study if you look at responses to sounds it may be the definitive sound response brain imaging study now it's it's still unclear whether any of those techniques can reveal the basis or the biomarker for tinnitus I think to really understand tinnitus, you have to understand all the, the complexities of how perception in general works in the brain. And that's an incredibly multifaceted and subtle area. But I, th I think there is a really significant chance of real progress here if, if the brain imaging measures are there. And then, yeah, absolutely, even if they're not, it, it, you know, then the use as a resource to feed into and just massively bolster the quality of and recruitment into a range of other research studies going on nationwide, um, I, th I think could be could be immensely helpful. Right. So this, you feel, is going to be a real step change in tinnitus research. It sounds as if it's got the potential to really influence very widely all the research activity possibly that's that's going to be undertaken. Yeah, I think potentially, yeah. So because if you imagine as an example, you know, if if I run a research study with even say, you know, 60 people, 30 with tinnitus and without um, up in Newcastle, and someone else runs one in London and someone else runs one in, runs, runs one in Nottingham, even if we try and, you know, we, and we've all got our own interests, say one of us is using EEG and others using magnetic responses and others using fMRI and brain and others using structural brain scans and we want to compare the results of these to each other we may find even if we've set out trying to all study tinnitus we've all recruited slightly different groups of people through different means mine might have a lower level of mean distress because I don't get them through hospital clinics and someone else might get them through clinics and have people with high levels of distress might be different hearing profiles we may make different measures of people's hearing and their audiograms and tinnitus characteristics we all assess them in different ways and so actually, by the time you then, even before you get into comparing the different measures we're making, we, we, we may well be looking at fundamentally different groups or subtypes or categories of, of people with, uh, with tinnitus. So, so I think one way, I think as David's very rightly been thinking, if this biobank is established and we're able to go, well, okay, I'm pick, you know, I can define exactly this point in the you know this this category of people with tinnitus who have age between this this range tinnitus distress between this range with these audiometric characteristics and these masking level functions and everything suddenly we don't all have to reinvent the wheel and try and recruit a tinnitus population and all do it differently we can very easily get truly equivalent populations 
just by selecting from a predefined list, not, not to mention save an enormous amount of work um, in the process, which is a, a very large part of researchers' time ju just in recruiting and finding the right people. So I think it definitely helped, but I think, you know, just because of that close, much more closer matching and real you know, have being able to have consistent representative populations. I, th I, I think you know we we maybe could rightfully call it a, a potential step change in tinnitus research. I think one thing I'm picking up from from both of you is that although the idea sounds very abstract, and how is it related to actually helping people with tinnitus in the here and now? It's actually going to be a really practical resource. And a very functional resource. I, I think I think it is very practical, and it's a good point. And you need to remind us, you know, that um, particularly people like me in the research community, yes, you know, it, it easily can feel like a separate issue to actually just getting on and curing tinnitus. But the, the trouble is, the you know, broadly speaking, the reason we can't yet cure tinnitus is we don't truly understand the mechanisms of tinnitus, and I think there's been an there's been misplaced optimism about tinnitus cures for a long time now. So a few years back, talking to a, a number of eminent tinnitus researchers, they were reminiscing saying, well, 10 years ago, we had a big annual tinnitus conference and the question was openly asked, when are we going to get a tinnitus cure? And the most pessimistic figure given was 10 years. And when we were having this discussion, now 10 years had passed and there was no tinnitus cure. And I, you know, I, th I am optimistic we will eventually get there. I'm still not sure how and what it will look like, when it will be discovered, how it will be discovered. But I think, I think it's unfortunately naive to rush straight for the cures and the treatment until we. Re I mean, there's always a chance it works, but what's really has the chance of getting us there is knowing exactly what we're treating, what are the markers, what are the the core mechanisms we need to get in there and modify, and and this kind of re research of really robustly characterizing tinnitus, getting rid of all the caveats and the confounds and the roadblocks holding up progress, it is such a necessary step. And, and I think then, you know, these the steps that will move us towards the treatments and eventually the cures will, will follow on. Yeah, so, and I think this responds to, to some of those points. So whilst it can feel like we're, we're taking a step back, um, there were three big tinnitus drugs trials that happened um i think the the last one reported around around 2018 2019 and they all failed um, but what was really different this time was that a lot of the companies talked about why they failed and what what they saw as the shortcomings in research and this project really is a, a response to those so things like you know the lack of adequate measures the the lack of a way to effectively target a population within the tinnitus population to trial a drug on the fact that you know they couldn't actually properly measure tinnitus at a start and end point to see what the change was you know these these were really big issues that they've raised alongside things like you know tran the translational research and the fact that you know the, these research projects are done so well in in animal models but then didn't go into clinical models and didn't sort of pass muster once they're in human trials and and so these huge issues were raised by pharma companies at the time and and this study is part of trying to address those to to help build those blocks so that drugs trials in the future do have a greatest chance of success. Thank you David and I guess what are the next steps in this project and what would you like to see um, happen? 
So from here, it is about um, getting together a, a scientific board um, to look at really starting to develop the protocol and put some meat on the bones, really, of you know what tests and how and and check that you know what we're proposing would be acceptable to to people living with tinnitus as well that they would actually turn up to a van on a cold day in Stoke or something and you know sit in there for a couple of hours and, and do those tests so so you know we've got to do that side of it but as well a big part is going to be you know getting the fundraising going as well this is going to be the biggest ever research project as I said that's happened certainly that's been delivered by the BTA um, at in partnership with others so so again you know it will be about getting that income in getting the money in to make sure that we can make this happen and make it a reality as well as you know doing what we can to to develop the project alongside that and develop the protocol and hopefully pilot it as well. Fantastic and I mentioned earlier that people can get involved by signing up at tinnitus.org.uk forward slash biobank so that they can register an interest in participating once it gets underway or finding out a little bit more about what a biobank is and how the proposals are. Um, If people have got any questions about uh, what they've heard on the podcast they can also submit a question because we'll put uh, an FAQ together from that so that they can find out more as well and that's at tinnitus.org.uk forward slash tinnitus hyphen week hyphen podcast hyphen 2022 can i just add a little bit nick just to say i you know i'm really excited by this project and incredibly passionate about it i do think where we are at the moment as a research community as a as as a patient community um this makes a lot of sense to try a project like this to see if we can take it forward and i'm really optimistic about what it will produce as well so I just you know emphasize the point you made there to, to people listening to this please engage with us get involved send us your thoughts you know what do you think you know is this a go what else have we missed what do you think we should be looking at because you know I think we're, we're really looking for this to be a community project as well and something that is owned by the tinnitus community so so yeah get involved and and joining the debate on on how we should do this and take it forward. Fantastic. And Will, are you as excited about the project as David is? Very much so. Yes. I, I, I won't. Uh, I won't restate his level of excitement. Uh, other than say, I agree on all fronts, and I share his level of enthusiasm. That's that's fantastic. I think we will probably draw this to a close now. So it just remains for me to thank Will Sedley, thank David Stockdale. Thank our sponsor, Autology Tinnitus Care, and just remind people again, if you'd like to participate, it's tinnitus.org.uk forward slash biobank. And if you've got any questions for us that we can use for our FAQ, tinnitus.org.uk forward slash tinnitus hyphen week hyphen podcast hyphen 2022. Thank you very much.